Our assignment tonight is Obadiah. I want to thank uh, Brother David for giving me the opportunity to fill in for him. Uh, he is part, in parts yonder. I'm not sure where. I think Florida. But it's uh, my delight to be with you. And I have some notes. Turns out Dave and I pretty much agree. So, <laughs> But uh, no, that's... Uh, Take your Bibles, if you will, and uh, go. I'll give you a minute to find Obadiah. It may take us a little while. It won't take me long. I have a bookmark. But uh, I just honor David and honor you folks for spending the time to get to know these perhaps, uh, well, certainly some of the more inaccessible, more intrinsically difficult portions of the Bible, the minor prophets. On the one hand, they are so time-bound, you have to understand them in terms of their their own situation. On the other hand, they are so so entirely timeless, they have such important messages for us, and uh, they really, really shape, they should shape your theology of the Old Testament. Well, obviously. Let me just dive into Obadiah. uh, I'm just going to develop some essential facts real quickly. And uh, you can trace them on the uh, overhead again. First of all, regarding the, the, the author of the book, his name means worshiper or servant of Yahweh. You can hear the uh, Yah particle there, the Yahweh. Frankly, uh, I, I say there isn't a sobriquet, isn't a nickname. Uh, you know, uh, it's interesting. There are a number, it is my absolute persuasion that those who wrote books, which in fact were introduced into the sacred library, the scriptures, were always either prophets, Old Testament, or apostles, New Testament. I'll go a step further. I'm convinced that even though in many cases we don't really know much about some of these Old Testament writers, that uh, their generation knew them and knew them well, and that God had vindicated their claim to be a divine messenger by means of miracle. Now, you and I are the happy possessors of a completed scripture. And we come to it with a commitment of faith, and we recognize that it is the word of God. But there was, in fact, a historical process by which these books became part of that sacred library. Amen, amen? You understand that. And, of course, there is, this is a bit of an aside, forgive me here real quickly, there is the altogether too pervasive notion that the decision as to which books were to be introduced into the scriptures was some sort of a retroactive decision. That is, a generation living long after all the books had been written, and there were a lot of books floating around out there, and somewhere there was a big room and some very important people sat around a big table and they said, everybody in favor of Obadiah, raise your hand. You know, okay, it's in, what do you know? Can we all agree that's not the way it happened? I mean, it's represented almost that way sometimes. In point of fact, the books were introduced into the canon, into the sacred library, as they were written. When Moses completed the Pentateuch, Deuteronomy chapter 31, I believe it is, he said, you take these books and you lay them up before the Lord. And it's an interesting thing. This is a bit of an aside, and I may be in the middle of an aside. But, but there's a man by the name of Lane Rittmeyer, fascinating, fascinating scholar, who has done more work than anybody else to, to identify the place where the Holy of Holies sat, the place where the temple. He's 
done a lot of work under that uh, despicable dome called the Dome of the Rock and so on, done work on the rock. And on that rock, which lies under the Dome of the Rock, you with me there in Jerusalem in the Temple Mount, there's a dome and uh, it was built in the 600s and it is in fact a fist clenched in the face of God. But nonetheless, under that dome is a, a, a literal rock, of course. And it was on that rock, I believe, that Abraham offered up Isaac and that, and that Solomon established the Holy of Holies. But as Rittmeyer studied the rock, he, he discerned that there was a place, and, and the rock has been chipped away at and, 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 and reshaped in order to provide a foundation and so on. But the remnants he has been able to recover. It's remarkable. And right if, if you, if, as he explains where the walls would have been, right in the middle of, of what would have been the ancient Holy of Holies that Solomon built, got that? And that Herod Accord built on later. Right in the middle, well, Zerubbabel and then Herod, but right in the middle, there's a place where this very rough, uneven rock has been leveled off. It's a little rectangle. The interesting thing is, its width is the precise dimension of the Ark of the Covenant. It's quite clearly where that ark sat. That ark which was, in fact, the throne of King Yahweh, because the glory cloud dwelt above that ark. But he was a little consternated at first because as he did his work, he, the, 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 the flat space is deeper than the ark is deep. Does that make sense to you? It's exactly the same width, but it's deeper. And then somebody pointed out that verse in Deuteronomy, where God said, you lay these sacred scrolls up before the Lord. And I think that's the point, that it was deliberately designed to have enough space to lay the sacred scrolls there. And they were deposited. And then when the next writer of the Bible came along, his name was Joshua, it says in Joshua 21 that, 20, yeah, I think it is, that uh, he added to the book of the law of God. I think he went in there, he was a prophet, and he added to it. Now, there wasn't any long process by which, you know, people deliberated which books go in. When a man who was authorized by God as a divine spokesman, anybody could claim to be a divine spokesman, and many did falsely. But there was a positive qualifier, and that qualifier was miracle. And when a man was given by God the capacity, by the way, by the way, should I finish the thought? When a man was given the capacity to do the miracle, it proved it. Now, that he was a messenger. Now, here's the point. Where does that start? It starts at the burning bush, where that first writing prophet of God is chosen and, and dispatched, and Moses has a question. It's an unspeakably important question. How shall they know you have sent me? I'm going to go and say, Yahweh has sent me, and he's going to deliver you from Egypt. How are they going to know? Remember what God's answer was? What's that in your hand? Throw it down. Pick it up. Put your hand in. Draw it out. It's leprous. Stubby little fingers. Put it back in. Full. Now, I don't know that there's any spiritual point to be made from the fact that Moses could throw down his staff, became a serpent, pick it up, became a staff once again, and so on. But I'll tell you something, you see, only God can do that. And if you think of the magicians, they didn't do that. They, they could charm a snake and throw it down, but I'll tell you what they never did, is they never picked it up again. I think Pharaoh probably sat there and yawned a little bit until Moses picked that thing. Ooh, well, that's good. <laughs> uh, when he picked it up and handed it to him, now we're on a different plane, you see what I'm saying? And I think, uh, personally, any time you gave Moses any grief, he'd go, see that? You want to see that again? <laughs> okay, Moses. Now... The point is that true blue, no kin around, top drawer, full-blooded, grade A, hair on their chest, miracles, because we use that word to mean everything, but a real miracle 
only God can do. And so now, I, I, having broached that subject, I'm going to say very, very quickly that there was, I believe, this one positive qualifier which you would necessarily look for in a man who claimed to be a divine messenger. I think there are a number, and I don't think, the Bible is quite clear that there are a number of negative disqualifiers. For instance, if a man had, this is Deuteronomy 13, if a man had a miracle, but what he was teaching was contrary to what God had already said, he was to be stoned to death. That's Deuteronomy 13. That covers the Antichrist. Because somebody said, well, wait a minute. The Antichrist is going to do miracles. Yeah, he is. There's one qualifier, miracles, which includes the capacity to tell the future in detail. There are many disqualifiers, and one disqualifier trumps the qualifier. Does that make sense to you? Now, my point is, you have in the scriptures these books which claim to have been written by this or that prophet. That's, that's, that's hugely important. Because a prophet, means spokesman, was someone who had been chosen by God as his personal spokesman, representative, mouthpiece. There's one time where God says to the Israelites in the days of Isaiah, Why did you not consult with my mouth? He calls Isaiah, my mouth. That's, that's what they were. They, were. they were spokesmen for God. And, and, and my point is that they were duly authorized And so, you know, one of the most amazing things in the Old Testament, this is a different prophet, is the fact that Jeremiah, who was so despised by his own generation, right? When he died, they put his book in. And Daniel, who's a late contemporary, we're not talking 100 years later after a big vote around a big table. Daniel, who is a late contemporary, Daniel 9, is reading in the book of Jeremiah in the scriptures. He recognizes that as scriptures. Does that make sense to you? Paul quotes Luke as scripture in 1 Timothy 5. Peter refers to Paul's writings in 2 Peter 3.16 as scriptures. Scriptures are a very special word. The Jews didn't use that for just anybody. That was a book from God that belonged in this authoritative sacred canon. So I'm saying to you, what you have is divinely authorized human spokesmen whose words are clearly authoritative, and therefore what they said you believed and what they wrote down as they directed you to, you'd include it in this Bible. Does that make sense to you? So it, it, the only reason I spend any time with it, and forgive me, is that we, Obadiah is one of these prophets, is again, about whom we know virtually nothing. He only shows up here. There are 12 different guys with the name Obadiah. It was a common name. Some people suggest that this wasn't even his real name, that perhaps by reason of, uh, it probably was, Malachi is the same thing. Malachi means the messenger. And uh, some people, my messenger, but some people think his name is just a a sobriquet, a nickname. We don't know. But uh, it's not all that important. And, and, uh, well, I'll just leave it alone. The the fact of the matter is that clearly this was a man who was a divinely authorized prophet. And his message was insinuated into that sacred list immediately. Uh, But otherwise, we know very, very little about him, virtually nothing. This we know, and this is what I want to emphasize. And so when you think of Obadiah, I used to teach through the prophets, and I'd, I'd, uh, I'd, I'd, I'd offer a little tagline for each prophet, and I'd say, now, get to where when you say the name, you automatically say the tagline. And for Obadiah, I'd suggest prophet of Edom's doom. Whenever I think of Obadiah, the next thing, it, it necessarily, I can't escape it in my mind, is prophet of Edom's doom. So it sums up the whole thing. And uh, you can really, so what we do know about this prophet, and we know it from the book, reading backwards from his book, 
We know that he was a prophet uh, who lived in the southern kingdom, probably, almost certainly, matter of fact, really certainly after the division of the kingdom, after Solomon, after the division of the kingdom, remember, under Jeroboam. And uh, he lived during a day when Israel, Jerusalem specifically, had been sacked by an enemy, and their neighbor to the south, Edom, and their cousin uh, had... uh, had, uh, had rejoiced over it and participated in it. And so the whole book is given over to a diatribe against Edom because of the fact that they had delights. Does that make sense to you? All right, I'm going to leave it alone. There are a couple of really important themes there. Now, the date. I want to spend a little time with this. And, uh, I don't, but but this, is, this is really tough. It's not, you're, you're not going to... The way you handle the book, the way you understand the book is not going to be demonstrably changed by which of the the possible dates you choose, okay? Many of the prophets, by the way, date themselves. Remember that? You know, who prophesied the days of Hezekiah. Well, bingo, there we are. Obadiah does not do that. The only clue we have is that clearly there has been this tragedy where Jerusalem, the capital city, the city where God had placed his name, had been sacked by an enemy, and Edom, the Edomites to the south, had delighted in it. So there are three possibilities. I want to talk about them a little bit. Well, that's what I just said, so I'm not going to read that. Uh, There are at least these three events, and the first is during the reign of Jehoram. Now, I want you to take your Bibles quickly. Don't lose Obadiah. I got you there. and haven't read anything yet, if I remember right, but by the way, by the way, go ahead. 2 Chronicles 21. It's interesting, I should say, my eye falls upon it, that uh, Obadiah introduces the book by saying the vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord, concerning Edom. So clearly that's what the book is all about. But if you go over to 2 Chronicles 21, there's there's a a remarkable story, a really, really remarkable story. One could get lost in this story if he were not so much more careful about that sort of thing than I am. But but, uh, 2 Chronicles 21, now listen. I'm going to background it for you. This is Jehoram, and I know the kings fall in on one another, right? Straighten them out. So let, let me help you straighten them out. Do you, I mean, this little, this little point. Do you remember the most... All right, make sure everybody's on the same page. We speak in the Old Testament of the United Kingdom. Who are those three kings? Under the United Kingdom. Saul, David, Solomon. Solomon dies. His son is Rehoboam. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm persuaded that Solomon penned made the initial contribution to the book of Proverbs as a sort of a wisdom curriculum for his son Rehoboam to teach him how to live wise and circumspect life and be a good king. But evidently, Rehoboam slept through some of the lessons, right? Remember that? Because when Rehoboam becomes king, he does foolishly, he divides the kingdom. Remember that? So ten tribes say, what have we to do with the house of David? And they take off and they establish their own religion, their own capital up, ultimately at Samaria and so on. Now you've got two kingdoms. God's, God's testing you here because you've got kings in the north, kings in the south. And as you read First and Second Kings especially, you're going back and forth and back and forth. And every once in a while, just to see if you're paying attention, God causes the king in the north to have the same name as the king in the south. Where really, you know, you really got to have a pencil and paper. Well... Have you ever noticed this? I'm sure you have. That as you're reading, after 1 Kings 11 and 12 and the division of the kingdom and so on, 13, then you get into this, this lickety split going from one king to the next, and each gets a couple, eight verses, nine verses, very, very, you know, he came to the, king, he came to the throne, he was this old, and he did evil, which was sight in the Lord. And, and then all of a sudden, when you get to Ahab, God throws on the brakes. And at the end of 1 Kings, in the beginning of 2 Kings, you have this extensive, 
careful delineation of one of the most remarkable narratives in the Bible, and it has to do with the, the, the ministry of Elijah and Elisha. Now, let's think about why. Why? This is the great crisis of the northern kingdom, the history of that apostate northern kingdom, Israel. What had happened is there was a king, and there, there, there were many, there were seven different dynasties, and there were bloodbaths plenty, and so on, but there was a king by the name of Ahab. He becomes the standard of wickedness, even more wicked than, than Jeroboam, who had, had been the first king and had set up the false religion, the Dan and Bethel worship site. Ahab was married to whom? Wicked Jezebel. Uh, just as uh, the divine name is resident in the name Obadiah, Yahweh, so the name of Jezebel's God is resident in her name. What is it? It's Baal. Baal. She was a devotee of Baal. She determined that she was going to obliterate Yahweh worship and replace it with, she's going to make the national religion of the northern kingdom to be Baal worship. She was going to make that, there, there, and she was going to, she, was going, she, she, she functionally outlawed Yahweh worship. By the way, time out. You can see here's a bit of a progression because you remember when Jeroboam, all right, Solomon dies, Rehoboam becomes king of the south, divides the kingdom, and the northern king is Jeroboam. And Jeroboam establishes two worship centers, Dan and Bethel. Remember that? It was a horrible, wicked apostasy. But Jeroboam simply defied the second commandment. Thou shalt have no graven images. He made those golden calves. He said, this is your God, Yahweh. He didn't abandon Yahweh worship. But he reduced it to a pagan idol worship. That's horribly wicked. But you see, Jezebel went the next step. She defied the first commandment. She decided to have another God. Does that make sense to you? It is a huge crisis. And Ahab and Jezebel, and Jezebel is the uh, senior member of that duo, but uh, Jezebel, as I say, a horribly wicked Sidonian princess from Phoenicia, sets out to abolish uh, Yahweh worship. She and Ahab have a son. His name is... No, 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 no. That, that's true. They had a son, but that's not what I want to talk about. In the meanwhile, in the southern kingdom, Ahab and Jezebel in the north, right? In the southern kingdom, there is one of eight good kings. His name is Jehoshaphat. He's acknowledged as a good king who honored God, but he made really, really wicked alliances. And one of the things that he did, Jehoshaphat had a son named Jehoram. And Jehoram married, all right, Ahab and Jezebel in the north had a daughter. Her name was Athaliah. And Athaliah was wed to Jehoram in the south. And she set out, she was as wicked as her mother. Matter of fact, I always say she was the most wicked, or the most undoting grandmother in human history. Remember that? Oh, you got two cows. She's the one who tried to kill all of her grandchildren in order to wipe out the line of David, but she overlooked one. She didn't know how many she had. She missed one. 
And that's how the, the kingdom survived, uh, the line of David. But now my point is here is simply this, that you had in the north, you had Ahab and Jezebel, and they had set out to obliterate Yahweh worship. And now in the south, that same mentality is insinuated through Athaliah, and she sets out, and God raises up these two remarkable men, Elijah and Elisha, to address that, by the way, that, that calamity, that, that, that danger. How close did Jezebel and Athaliah come? We, we can be pretty exact about this. Remember when, when, when Elijah said, I and I alone, God said, no, 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 how many? 7,000 in the whole land. There are only 7,000 who had not bowed the knee to Baal. It's, it's, it's the grand crisis of the, of the monarchy. Now, I give you all that. Take you to 2 Chronicles 21. Because you have one of the most interesting passages here. And I, I want to trace it just a little bit. Uh, again, now I'm, I'm getting way ahead of myself here. But I think this is where we ought to put Obadiah. I'm going to deal with the other ones in just a moment. But because there are some remarkable synchronisms here, some remarkable ways in which the spirit of Obadiah overlaps with the situation here in 2 Chronicles 21. Uh, 2 Chronicles 21, just pick it up at verse 1. Jehoshaphat rested with his fathers. Now that's the king in the south. That's the good king. He was buried with his fathers. Then drop down to verse... uh, the end of verse 21. Then Jehoram, his son, reigned in his place. Now this is the Jehoram who is going to marry Athaliah, has by this time, as a matter of fact. And uh, notice he had all these brothers, and they were sons of Jehoshaphat, king of Israel. Verse 3, their father gave them great gifts, and so on. But verse 4, when Jehoram was established over the kingdom of his father, he strengthened himself and killed all his brothers. This is a treacherous, wicked man. One of the first things he does is slay all of his brothers. And um, he's only going to reign for eight years. He walked, look, verse 6, in the way. This is really, really a, a horrible denunciation. He walked in the way of the kings of Israel. This is a king in the south. He behaved himself like one of the kings of Israel. And specifically, he had the uh, daughter of Ahab as a wife, and he did evil on the side of the Lord. But I want you to notice verse 7, and I'm going to come back to this. This is why I spent all the time I did. Look at verse 7. Yet the Lord would not destroy the house of David because of the covenant that he had made with David. And since he had promised to give a lamp to David and to his sons forever. Now that's the Davidic covenant. I like to say that the absolute high point of Old Testament history is 2 Samuel 7. It's where God comes to David and makes him this remarkable, blessed covenant, which is such a high point in the history of of, of redemptive revelation. Everything after that kind of builds on that. And here's one of those places. You have this unspeakably wicked king by the name of Jehoshaphat, and uh, Jehoram, I'm sorry, Jehoram. And by reason of his wickedness and the intermarriage with this wicked woman, uh, Athaliah, the Davidic line is going to come down to one little boy who is being hid by the high priest. That's how close, but God's not going to let that lamb go out. Why? Because he's a covenant-keeping God. Because he he wants to demonstrate his character as a God who will not break covenant under any circumstances. And so he says, even the wickedness and so on, he he honored his covenant. Now, look at verse 8. In his day, Edom. Now, here's the synchronism. Obadiah is crying out against Edom. Edom revolted against Judah's authority and made a king over themselves. They had been under, they had been paying tribute to Judah for a long time, ever since David and now uh, they, they uh, rebelled against that 200 years later. So Jehoram went out with his officers and all his chariots with him, and he rose by night and attacked the Edomites who had surrounded him and captains of the chariots and so on. And, and he 
But then it says, interestingly enough, in verse 10, Thus Edom has been in revolt against Judah's authority to this day, and they revolted against his rule and so on. Now, what happens here, and this is one of the more intriguing stories of the Old Testament, beginning in verse 12 is a letter came to him from Elijah the prophet. Are you familiar with this? The issue here is that most commentators will say that Elijah had been dead for about seven years when Jehoram got this letter. And I'm not going to spend any time on it save to say this. There are those who argue that we've overread the record of Elijah's... It's very hard to... I, I say dead. Elijah was caught up to heaven in a whirlwind, of course, but the point is he had been absent for all of those years. And, and there are those who say, well, it could have, he could have still been alive. Uh, it's hard to date that thing in the second year of Ahaz, whether or not that's when it happened. So some say he's not dead. Others say that this is by reason of the fact that he was caught up in a whirlwind. He wasn't, life wasn't taken from him. He was still around, as it were. Somehow he still had contact. I'm not convinced of that at all. Somehow he was able to communicate from the grave, or from, I, the grave's not appropriate here, but from the other life, from the afterlife, he was able to communicate. I don't think so. I'm convinced, and I haven't got time to develop it, but I think it makes the most sense, and it's really quite compelling and fits well with all that we read about Elijah, that Elijah had written this letter before he died. And it was truly prophetic. It was twice prophetic. It was prophetic because it was the hand of a prophet, and it was prophetic because it was actually addressing a situation that happened some years after his translation. And when Jehoram got a letter and how it was, it was established as a letter from now. They, he'd had a lot of interaction. They knew this man Elijah, and Elijah couldn't do anything that, that would you know, entirely surprise Jehoram. But a letter came from Elijah the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord God of your father David, because you have not walked in the ways of Jehoshaphat your father, in the ways of Asa, he's another good king, have walked in the way of the kings of Israel, made Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to play the harlot like the harlotry of the house of Ahab. He's talking about the false religion, have killed your brothers, and so on who were better than yourself, behold, the Lord will strike your people with serious affliction, your children, your wives, and your possessions. You'll become sick with the disease of your intestines, and so on. And then it says in verse 6, so you have this letter, which anticipates Jehoram's wickedness, I think prophetically anticipates it, and, 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 and describes specific uh, punishment that God is going to use. And part of that is that uh, in verse 14, well, I, notice what happens in verse 16. He says, More the Lord stirred up against Jehoram the spirit of the Philistines and the Arabians, way down the peninsula near the Ethiopians. And they came up into Judah and invaded it and carried away all the possessions that were found in the king's house and also his sons and his wives. So there was not a son left to him except Jehoahaz, the youngest of his sons. This is the one that was... Hit. And after all this, the Lord stuck him with an incurable disease and it was... Uh, it happened in the course of time, after two years, that his sickness came up because of it. intestines. Well, there's no one of those. I like to say Bible stories you're going to be hard-pressed to find a flannel graph for. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, his people, uh, uh, you can read the rest of it yourself. Now, I'm just going to say this. We go back to Obadiah. We're going to in just a minute. And I want you to see that there are some remarkable ways in which the two fit together really, really well, this incident. Does that make sense to you? Let me, I gotta be done, so I mean, I gotta hurry. So let me say, oh, I was gonna deal with some of the kings, but um, so I'm saying that first of all, there is the idea, and this is here during the reign of, of Jehoram, 
But then there is also the idea that it happened during the reign of King Ahaz. And I don't want to get into this too deeply. You can go to 2 Kings and read that for yourself. Uh, Ahaz is the king of the south who refused. All right. Ahaz was set upon by two kings to the north, Syria and Israel. And he lived in the day when Isaiah was prophesying, Ahaz. And Isaiah came to him and said, trust the Lord. And the king Ahaz said, I'm not going to trust the Lord, I'm going to trust Egypt. And Isaiah said, no, 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 trust the Lord. As a matter of fact, he can do it. Ask a sign, ask any sign. No, I'm not going to ask a sign. So I'm going to give you a sign, a virgin shall conceive. This is the context for the virgin prophecy of Isaiah 7. There is indication that Ahaz, by reason of his hardness and so on, was sacked. They they never entirely conquer him, but he was sacked by those two northern kingdoms. Does that make sense to you? So some will place it there. And then the other one, and this is the one with which we're the most familiar, is at the final destruction of Jerusalem by Babylon. And many will argue that that's when it happened. Now, have I lost you entirely? The point is that, A, we know for sure that Obadiah is responding to a time when Jerusalem was sacked and Edom delighted. But the problem is that there are two or three different times where you could, and most all conservative scholars go with either one, either, either Jehoram or Nebuchadnezzar. As a matter of fact, I gave you here on the slide just to make sense of this. I say there's a remarkable parallelism between Obadiah 16 to 18 and a passage in Lamentations. All right, now remember, Lamentations was penned by the prophet Jeremiah as he sat on a hill and watched the Babylonians destroy the city. It's a funeral dirge sung over the city of Jerusalem. And so clearly Lamentations is written in connection with the latter of those three possibilities. Have I lost you entirely? Here I give you Obadiah and Lamentations side by side. But what I want you to catch is there are some remarkable parallels. Uh, Obadiah talks about how is about how Edom had drunk themselves, drunk with their wickedness, and uh, lamentation has the same th- thought: the cup, sh- cup shall pass, and thou shalt be drunken, and so on. And then uh, uh, Obadiah in in verse seventeen says, "Upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance." And again, uh, down here, O daughter of Zion, he'll no more carry thee away. You have very much the same thing. And then in the green, there shall not be anything remaining of the house of Esau. And he concludes, he'll visit iniquity of daughter of Edom, he'll discover thy sins. So there is some remarkable parallelism there. And some people say, well, you got the same thought going on in Jeremiah and Obadiah. And Jeremiah's talking about the fall of Nebuchadnezzar. I don't think that proves anything, quite honestly, because I think Jeremiah is remembering Obadiah. Does that make sense to you? I think, I think the, the similarity is not necessarily that they're contemporaneous, but that Jeremiah knew Obadiah well and... and, and so I'm going to, you know, and I give you some arguments against the, the latter for what it's worth, but I don't want to spend any time with it. Right, sorry about that. Here's, here's where I want to take you. I think, and I, I, I realize it's somewhat tentative. I think we can be virtually confident that Obadiah's reference is to one of those two, either the earlier one in the 9th century, 800s, or the latter one in the 6th century, the 500s, the earlier one being Jehoram, the latter being the fall of Jerusalem to Nebuchadnezzar. I spent the time in the passage in 2 Chronicles 21 because there are a couple of emphases there that I think really, really are helpful in understanding what's going on in Obadiah. Now, I'm going to go very quickly. Regarding the Edomites, of course, their location, Edom is south of the Arabah, the Jordan Rift, as it stretches to the south, and it's on the desert. It is uh, dry, but it is very, very important territory because of the trade routes that pass through there, primarily the spice routes, which were very, very 
lucrative and so on. And so they were really a wealthy people. And of course, their pride is the rose red city of Petra. How many of you have been to Petra? Any of you? When, when were you there? What's it like? Is it built up? I was there in 1980, and you had to get in a donkey and ride out quite a ways, but I hear it's kind of commercialized. Oh, is that right? But not big hotels or anything? No. Oh, okay, good. Well, Petra is very worth, it's in Jordan today. When you go to Israel, many trips will do a little side trip and go over to Petra. It's, it's, it's very much worth doing. But, uh, but it's a remarkable city, and, and it is, here's, this is, you know, it was made famous by Indiana Jones, you know. But uh, this, there is this, uh, uh, what is it, about a mile and fifth long, no, no, I can't remember how long, channel in the rock, deep channel, which at one time is described as having been so narrow that you had to get off your donkey to get through. Now, it's been widened at every those spots today so they can get a jeep in there. But the only way to get into this deep canyon is to pass through this, this long channel called the Seek. And, and uh, when you emerge, you, 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 the ancients uh, carved these uh, public buildings and then these dwelling places and so on out of the rock. And so it was, it was regarded, those are some of the homes and so on up in the rock, and they're all very shallow, by the way. If, remember in Indiana Jones, he goes in there and it goes on and on. And on. It goes, it's about 12 feet deep, you know, because it's, it's rock, for heaven's sakes. But, but uh, matter of fact, that's what Petra means, just like Peter. The, the Greek is Petra, the, the, the Aramaic or the Arabic is uh, Sila, and it means, it means uh, rock. It's a city made out of rock. Now, the reason it was so important... You cannot, folks, you cannot overstate the importance of walled cities or impregnable fortresses in the ancient world. If you are going to, I mean, marauders are going to come through, and if they're going to establish control of your country, they're going to have to destroy the walled cities. Petra was so impregnable, it was virtually impossible. You had to attack it single file. That's difficult. Right? And so it was virtually impregnable. And it's exactly that that they took pride in. And, and indeed, they, they were able to maintain themselves. I mean, they could hide in there. And if the marauding kings came through, they got what they could. Then they went home. And then you come back out and reestablish yourself. So this rose red city of Petra is hugely important. More importantly, I've got to be done. But there is a, to a unique, I, I think it's safe to say, to a unique degree, the people who throughout the, the, the narrative of the Old Testament most troubled the people of Israel were the Edomites. And of course, this is the more important because Edom is the name assigned to Jacob's brother Esau. So what you have here are the Esauites. And furthermore, by the way, when you get to the New Testament, they are the Edomians. It's just a corruption of the word Edomite. And, and uh, the most famous Edomian in the New Testament, of course, is Herod the Great and all of his successors. So when you start thinking about Herod, and I love to talk about it, but you think about the reign of Herod over Israel in the days of Jesus, remember that not only was he a Roman client king who exercised all the, uh, the, the power and abuse of the Rome, but he was also a, an offspring of Esau, the hated brother of Jacob, and that, that, it's just all throughout their history, this contention, and you can trace it there. Now, I want to spend a moment, just real quickly, and then I've got to be done. Folks, let me tell you something. Here you have a, God, a, a, a divine prophet 
uh, crying out against Edom for their wickedness against Israel, crying out against Edom because when Israel had been sacked by an enemy, Israel, uh, Edom had not only done nothing to protect her, but had delighted in her in her destruction and, and even trapped people who were trying to escape. You remember, he makes reference to that, and had participated in taking spoil. Now, it's easy to read that as if, well, you know, God just kind of played favorites. He just decided he liked Israel better than anybody else, and so he beat up on everybody else. And is that really fair? Should Edom, might get, should, should, should Edom be, be beat up this bad when Israel sometimes did their own wickedness? Folks, you've got to understand, and this is so huge, and I meant to leave myself time to talk about it, but I'll say it very, very simply. God... The business of history is the glory of God. Amen and amen? Human history is about God glorifying himself. Now, in his perfect and all-wise purposes, he has determined to do that most dramatically through one people, Israel. It is not because Israel is special. It's not because they deserve it. It's not because they are better than anybody else. As a matter of fact, the way history has unfolded and will yet unfold is all about demonstrating their ill desert because God's grace and his covenant-keeping character is best seen against the backdrop of the unspeakable stubbornness and ill desert of this people whom he has chosen. That makes sense to you? So, so it, it, it's not because, but, but, but in the ancient world especially, understand that there was one nation with whom God had made covenant. And this is the God of the universe. And so what was the responsibility of other nations? It was simple. You know what? I think you never see the what God... When God chose Israel, he wasn't, he wasn't restricting himself. It wasn't like he didn't want to reach the rest of the world. He was, in fact, putting himself on display to the rest of the world. The rest of the world had a response that was expected of them. And I think it's never so well, this is a leap, but I think it's never well, so well represented as by that woman in Syrophoenicia to whom Jesus, to, who came to Jesus when Jesus went into a house and would have no man know it. Mark 7, verse 24. The woman comes and says, I have a daughter who is demon-possessed. No, I can't do it. I'm only sent to the, cho- uh, the, the house of Israel. And, uh, and it's not appropriate to take that which is intended for the children and give it to the dogs. And I hear different people say, well, you know, dogs were domesticated and some of them were really nice. And so on. No, that, that was a hard statement. And you couldn't have blamed that woman if she turned on her heel and marched out of there. But you know what? I think her spirit was, look, you're God, I'm not. You're the God man. You want to choose Israel? That's your business. But can't we have some of the crumbs that fall from the table? That just is blinding to me. The, not only the faith, but the humility, the willingness to say, look, I'm not in charge of the world. You're in charge of the world. And the world's not about, about everybody getting fair play. The world is about God glorifying himself. And the fact is, there's nothing to be said in favor of Israel. There's nothing to be said in merit. I, always, I love that verse in Deuteronomy 7, 7, which is exploring the question, why did God choose Israel? I didn't choose you. Not choose. I didn't love you because you were greater than the other nations of the world, but because I loved you. You can never get beyond that. There's nothing there that makes Israel lovable. Does that make sense to you? But in point of fact, folks, God had chosen to put himself on display through this one undeserving, tiny, little people. 
And the response which was demanded was to bow the knee and to honor that this is the God. And many did. Many did. You have all of these proselytes who identified with Israel, the Naamans and the, and the Esthers, I'm sorry, the uh, Ruths and so on of the Old Testament. And all of that's noble, and God had a way for them, and that's what God intended. So what I want you to see is what's at stake here? When Edom, who had a great deal of light, these are the sins of Esau, these people had a great deal of light. When they high-handedly raised their fist against God's people, they're raising their fist against God. That's what's at stake here. This is not some sort of parochial little God playing favorites with one nation over another. The question before the house is, does God have a right to be glorified in the eyes of men? And if he has made himself known and attached himself, made a covenant relationship with Israel, then you honor that relationship. Not just the Jews, not just the, Israel, the people of Israel, but the people of the world. Does that make sense to you? It's so important to understand the dynamic of what's going on throughout the Old Testament. Well, I've got to be done. This, the fact is that uh, in the... Uh, you, let, me, let me just take you to... Uh, let's just read this. I was going to read the whole book, but... Uh, I got to thinking my words were more important than, than these, I guess. But go to Obadiah, just the last few verses. You know, one of the, one of the most blessed realities in the Old Testament, especially the prophets... Without exception, and no matter, and, and it is, this, this book is pretty much an unbroken diatribe scolding the, the people of Edom. Every prophet ends with a note of hope and promise. And of course, thus does uh, Obadiah in verse 17, on Mount Zion there shall be deliverance and there shall be holiness and the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions, that which God has vouchsafed to them, they become a fire, the house of Jacob the house of Joseph aflame, the house of Esau shall be stubble. They shall kindle them and devour them, and no survivor shall remain in the house of Esau. For the Lord has spoken. This idea of retribution, it's just because they have raised their fist in the face of God. And then he says in verse 19, the south or the Negev. He goes through the regions. The Negev shall possess the mountains of Esau. The Negev is the southernmost region, and it's the most proximate to Esau, to Edom. So the south shall possess the mountains of Esau, the lowland, or the Shephelah, that's the region west of Jerusalem, west of the, the, the hill country, and it's most proximate to Philistia. They shall possess Philistia, as well as the fields of Ephraim to the north, and the fields of Samaria, the northern kingdom. Benjamin shall possess Gilead, that's an area to the east that is proximate. So in these, these, Gentile, these regions of Judah shall control all of these, these uh Gentile regions which have rebelled, and the captains of this host of the children of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites, as far as Zarephath, the captains of Jerusalem, who are in Shepharad. Those are places where, when the Jews were carried off, they tended to be taken. So the idea is that the Jews who have been carried off by wicked Gentiles will come back and shall possess the cities of the Negev and deliverers, saviors. God appointed warriors shall come to Mount Zion to judge the mountains of Edom. And here is a phrase that ought to resonate in your soul spirit. And the kingdom shall be the Lord's. That's the essence of Jesus' instruction when he instructs you how to pray. First thing you say after you acknowledge that God is holy is, Thy kingdom come. Do you not cherish that verse in Revelation that says, The kingdoms of the world shall become the kingdoms of God and his Christ. Days coming. And it'll be a day, not just when, when, when Israel will be exalted, but when a people with whom God has made a covenant relationship and who have, you know what, I'm so late. Let me just tell you this. You look today at what goes on in the Middle East and you, you think about the absolute insanity of so many 
who can't make any distinction between a little country that defends itself and thousands and thousands, you know, huge countries surrounding them that are committed to their destruction. And those are the same thing. You'll never make sense of what's going on even in our own world unless you bring the spiritual dynamic with it. Israel is the one people whom God has chosen to represent him on the earth. Now, they've done it haltingly. Today they do it in hardness and blindness and disbelief. They would rather not do it. I always say that's the Tevye principle. Remember, Fiddler? Remember, oh, maybe you could have chosen somebody else, you know? And it's not an easy thing. You and I live in a sin-cursed world. We live in a world that hates the God of the universe. And therefore, they are going to hate the people who, like it or not, haltingly or effectively, are the one people who bear his name as a people. It's not an easy thing. But the day is going to come when God is going to, first of all, exonerate his name, and that he is going to exalt that people to the place he has promised them, not because they deserve it, but because he is a covenant-keeping God whose grace knows no boundary. That makes sense to you? That's what's at stake here. All right, let me have a word of prayer with you. Father, we do thank you for your love to us, and we thank you for the many ways in which you have manifested that, but uh, you have, in, in the course of human history, chosen to glorify you, to put yourself on display, demonstrate both your goodness and your severity through this little people Israel. And we rejoice over the fact that you have promised again and again and demonstrated your capacity, even already in human history to be faithful to that covenant promise. We honor you for who you are, and we worship you as the God who has made yourself known to a people who, to us, to to a fallen race who are not only uninterested, but angry with, with you and anxious not to know you. But Father, you have made yourself known so powerfully, and in so many times your revelation yourself has had to do with this little people Israel, and so we honor you for your covenant-keeping character. And uh, again, keep us throughout this week. We'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.